0: Well, church may I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter eight, the eighth Psalm. And if you want to follow along in the pew Bible in front of you, you'll find that on page four hundred and fifty. We're going to spend a first couple of weeks in December in the Book of Psalms, and you perhaps don't remember. I began Psalms a year or so ago. We got through Psalm seven, and so we're just picking up where we left off a little while ago, and consider a couple more. And I will tell you, my time in Psalm 8 was just, has been just a rich, rich blessing to me. I'm really excited to preach this, uh, this passage to you, which probably means it'll be a boring sermon. Um, that's how it works out. Whenever I, I preach a sermon that I'm not excited about, people seem to be blessed by it. Whenever i got something, I'm really jazzed about, um, I'm not able to convey it, but uh, let's hope I can this morning. I just think it's an extraordinary sermon. I really could spend uh, three hours preaching it and not the two you've allotted me this morning. So um, I'm excited uh, to be able to be in this, and I trust uh, you will be blessed by it. You'll be blessed if you have a copy of God's Word open, as we'll just work through it verse by verse. Will you pray with me? Well, let's read the, verse, uh, the passage first. Psalm chapter 8, uh, he, hear now the Word of God. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, the psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. Scripture penned almost 3,000 years ago, and so true and relevant for us today. We believe, even as we have sung and prayed already this morning, that you, our God, are very great. That you are breathtaking and awesome and majestic in a hundred thousand different ways. Indeed, your majesty and glory is all around us. Wherever we go, we are surrounded by the splendor of our God. And yet we need eyes to see it. And we need hearts to rejoice in you. We need minds to understand. And so we ask for your help this morning. In Christ's name, amen. In the year 1905, Harvard University built, or finished building, the Emerson Hall, which houses their philosophy department. The philosophy professors uh, gathered together prior to the completion of the building and agreed to the inscription that would be uh, carved over the main entrance to Emerson Hall. They decided uh, that they would quote the ancient philosopher Protagoras, Quote, man is the measure of all things. This is one of the earliest affirmations of moral relativism, a declaration that we are the final judge, that we are the final arbiter of what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. We and we alone sit upon the throne. Well, the Harvard president at the time, a man named Charles Eliot, was of another mind. He secretly instructed, that a different inscription would be placed. And so when the professors returned from their summer off to their new, brand new, completed building, much to their surprise, above the main entrance, carved in marble, was not the saying, man is the measure of all things, but rather the saying, or the question, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Rather than exalting man as the judge of all Uh, That nothing stands above us as the professors wanted, the inscription remains there today to generations of students at the marvelous wonder that God would even think of us. Of course, these thoughts weren't original with Eliot. He's simply quoting the ancient philosopher king, if you will, David, from Psalm chapter 8 and verse 4. What is man? That's an interesting question, isn't it? One that has preoccupied many. Who are you? What are you? Perhaps this is a question that you yourself have thought about at some time in your life. What am I? What am I supposed to do? What is my purpose? Where can we find such answers? Well, perhaps we might stay at Harvard University. Maybe they have the answer to this question. We could, of course, have already seen that the philosophy department concludes that man is the measure of all things. Maybe we could leave the philosophy department and head over to the science hall, where we might sit under Harvard professor Dr. Pinker, who would speak to you of, quote, the stupidity of dignity. He would say to you, I know that you feel there is such a thing thing of human rights or dignity, but science disproves that it exists, end quote. He, of course, is not alone. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. has famously said, I believe that there are no innate, intrinsic differences among human beings, a baboon, or a grain of sand. You kind of wonder, is he in a bad mood that day? (laughs) It's like a Monday morning. Um, We're not different than a grain of sand. There is nothing intrinsically more valuable than us than a baboon or the sand upon the beach. Of course, this is logically indisputable if you affirm his base foundation that we are simply a mixture of chemicals, we're all here by accident, and a, and a grain of sand, also a mixture of chemicals, have different chemical composition, but why does our chemical composition have any more value than that of a bamboo or anything else upon this world? There is no value. You could add to his voice the late, great theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking who said, all that matters must be viewed as the result of random, pitiless indifference. Put that on your Christmas greeting card. (laughs) Nothing matters. It's all random. It's all indifferent. It is, to quote the great physicist, pitiless. One more, perhaps, might help us this morning. Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher, said, man is the product of causes which have no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental co of atoms. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction. And that while the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins, only with the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. What is man? An accident? No purpose, no value, no significance at all. And therefore, you and I, according to Russell, should relent and build our life upon the firm foundation of unyielding despair. Well, no offense to Drs. Pinker and Hawking and all the rest. I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. I'm going to go to his word and find a different answer according to the great psalm before us, the eighth psalm. In fact, we, we see a great deal about who we are in this psalm, but before we actually understand who we are, you notice the psalmist first cast our gaze upon God himself. The psalm, though, discusses our significance. It doesn't begin there. It begins with the greatness of God, and I would suggest to you it does so for a purpose. That it's only when we celebrate the surpassing majesty of God that we are properly prepared to discuss our own place and role in the universe in which he has created. In fact, this psalm, I think, ultimately, the the main thrust of it is about not the significance of humanity, but the majesty of the God who made them. Uh, it opens, you notice, in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and then closes with those very same words, verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Biblical scholars will call this an inclusio, An inclusio, When a, a passage of scripture begins and ends with the same uh, same quote or the same idea, we call these these are bookends to the passage, and they guide us to the main meaning of the passage. And so the passage is going to unfold for us the majesty and the greatness of God. And what we see, uh, perhaps um, something we would not conclude, what we see before us is that the majesty of God is actually revealed in human weakness through frail and weak humans. And so we see first of my two points this morning, that God's majesty is to be extolled. He extols God's majesty, as we see there in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'm afraid the English here is a bit of an awkward translation, O Lord, our Lord. Uh, That sounds somewhat repetitive, doesn't it? But, of course, you perhaps know that those are different words in the Hebrew. You see the first Lord there in all capital letters or in small caps. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, the word Lord in small caps, it is actually the covenantal name for God. We say in Hebrew, Yahweh, or in Greek, Jehovah. Uh, the, the, the Jews, and we carry this on into the English translation, uh, had such reverence for the, for the covenantal name of God that they wouldn't actually translate it. So they put a placeholder there and they put in Lord. And so we continue in that practice today. But really what we see there is, uh, O Yahweh is how he begins. Now, Yahweh is simply the name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. You remember, Moses would come to the burning bush and he would say, okay, go to to Pharaoh and, and, and tell him that he has to let my people go. Moses has a question. And the question is, when Pharaoh asks, who sent me, who should I say sent me? And God answers that question, tell him, I am that I am sent you. I am that I am. And the the Hebrew word Yahweh is just a, a, a verbal form that's connected to I am that I am. So Yahweh simply means, if you will, I am. That is, God is absolute. He has no beginning. He has no end. He never changes. He is totally perfect. He is totally self-sufficient. He simply is. He's dependent upon nothing, and he is perfect in every way. Unlike anything else in this creation, the only part of of, this, of existence that is not dependent upon something or someone is Yahweh. He is totally self-sufficient. Everything, therefore, at all times, in every place, is continually dependent upon him. Yahweh... Our Lord. Now, that word Lord might be uh, translated in the English king. It's the Hebrew word Adonai. Sometimes we refer to our kings as lords. And so he is, notice, our king. So this self-existent God is our great king. And he goes on and says about this great God, this great king, his name is majestic in all the earth. His name, therefore, a reference to his character, his nature. And it's full of majesty. His character is full of glory. And he tells us where that glory extends. It extends everywhere. In all the earth. In fact, read on in verse 1. We see he says, you shall have set your glory Above the heavens. That is, my friends, there is no place uh, where God is not majestic. There is no place where God is not glorious. There is no place where he is not supreme in every possible way. This is somewhat of a bold statement, for David lives in a very pluralistic age. All their neighbors had their own belief systems. People over there had their God. The people over there had their God. Everyone had their own God. And they all thought, you could have your God, we'll have our God. And we're all okay with that. And therefore, it's very relevant to us today. Because that's how we live, isn't it? We have our beliefs. They have their beliefs. All beliefs are valid. Yours are right in your own way. Theirs is right in their own way. None of us can be wrong. This is what has given rise to the interfaith movement. You bring your God, I'll bring my God. They bring their God, and we're all right, aren't we? Because we all have our beliefs, and we believe them, and that makes them right. And so here we are with our gods, and and the psalmist seems to be of a different mind saying, Yahweh, listen, Yahweh's not just our Lord, but his name is majestic, not just in Israel, just not within our borders, just not within this building, but God's name is majestic in all the... His glory is above even the heavens. So you might try to pin him down and say he's a Jewish God or an American God or or whatever kind of God you want. And the psalmist says, no, no, no. His glory goes everywhere. And therefore, we are to behold our God. And Christians, we are to stand in awe of his greatness and worship. For verse 1, I believe, is an invitation to do such that. It's to worship. Because David's not simply listing facts about God. He doesn't say, God God is majestic in all the earth. That's not what he says. He says, how majestic are you in the earth? He's not simply describing God. He's praising God. God's not, simply, God is not majestic, but his majesty is to be celebrated, is to be extolled, is to be praised. This is an exclamation of wonder. This is a summons for all who trust in him to find their delight in the majesty of Yahweh our king. For his majesty is in all the earth; his glory is above the heavens. Which perhaps raises the question: Okay, if God's majesty is everywhere, how do we see it? H- how does He make His glory uh, known? How does He reveal His majesty? And if I were to ask you that question, will you sit down and spend a couple hours tell me all the ways in which God makes His way His name majestic? I, I, I could guess, I might be wrong, but I guess you would not come up with the way the psalmist says God makes his name majestic. How does God make his name majestic? Verse 2, he does throw through babies. Right? Was that your answer? Infants. I will make my glory known through children. And then after babies, we consider humans in general. And we learn that God's majesty is revealed in very surprising ways, namely through weak children and frail humans, and that God will use them in such a way that, that they couldn't possibly be responsible for what, what God is doing through them. And therefore, God gets all the glory for their work. They get the joy of being uh, participating in it as God reveals his majesty through human weakness. So consider point two, God's majesty revealed. We'll spend the rest of our time unfolding this. You see, it seems to me in this psalm that God is is revealing His majesty really in two ways. Both have the main theme, that it's through human weakness. But in particular, He begins by saying He'll reveal His majesty through the weak defeating the mighty. The weak defeating the mighty. We see this in verse 2. It says, out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength, or some translations say praise, because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. So you note that God has enemies. God has, he calls them uh, enemies. He calls them foes. He calls them avengers. And they are, they're not heroes in tights, these avengers. Okay? These are people who don't want to acknowledge the majesty of God. These are people who want it for themselves, want glory for themselves. We might call them glory thieves. They don't want to give praise. They won't want to live for the praise of others. They want the praise for themselves. They want to make much of themselves. And therefore, they stand in opposition of God's great purposes to glorify himself in all the world. They are, therefore, according to the psalmist, God's enemies. And they will be defeated. In particular, the enemies will be defeated, uh, as we see at the end of verse 2, by being stilled. You see that? He says, to still the enemy and the avenger. That is, they will be silenced. So, okay, well, how is God going to defeat his enemies? How is he going to silence his foes? He's going to do so through babies. Right? God's going to triumph over his foes through children. Now, we need to be careful here with the terms. You see in verse 2, out of the mouth of babes, my translation puts it. Maybe your translation says, out of the mouth of children. That's a broad term that could include all the way into grade school age children. And then the second word that he uses, uh, in my translation, puts it infants. If you have the King James, it says sucklings. These are nursing children. Of course, we know at this time they would nurse their children all the way up to age three or thereabouts. And so we're not just thinking of, 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 of babies in the sense of of you know, uh, six months old, though it includes that, but it goes all the way up through uh, middle of grade school, perhaps. And that's how God intends to defeat his enemies. And so listen, uh, if you have a baby, if you have a child, I mean, this passage is for you, right? Grandparents, listen up. This passage is for you, you who work in the nursery, right? And you think, oh no, not the nursery. No, this passage is for you. Shouldn't we put this engraved above our nursery? Out of the mouth of babes and infants, right? You have established praise to defeat my enemies. And that's what he says that these babies will defeat God's enemies. They will silence them, not with their arms, not with the great strength of children, but with what comes out of their mouths. Out of the mouth, he says. Of, of children and sucklings, of babes and infants. So they are opening their mouths, and what comes out stills the enemy. What comes out silences God's uh, uh, foes. You say, well, what possibly could come out of a child's mouth that would do that? And you might think he was referring to screaming children, right? I mean, screaming children, a screaming child is a formidable opponent, isn't it, right? And I'm, I'm afraid to admit I, I have been defeated many times by a screaming child. But I don't think that's what he's referring to here. I think he's referring to their praise, to their worship. Right? Listen, toddlers are not dumb. Disney understands that. Right? I've got a two year old running around the house shouting at the top of her lungs, let it go, let it go. Right? And when she's not singing that, she's much to her daddy's uh, praise, she's singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, which I kind of prefer. And then every once in a while, she'll mix in the doxology, which we sing often as a family. But she's singing all the time. That's just a two-year-old. About a four-year-old, a six-year-old. You see, what the psalmist is telling us is when, the, when a child lisps out the gospel, when a child sings her little praise, out of that little mouth comes profound truth. In fact, truth that we never leave behind, even as adults foundational truth upon which we build our entire life. As one pastor put it, the universe is stunned at the magnificent majesty of God when toddlers pray before bedtime and sing in Sunday school. And I think what an encouragement this must be to moms who spend their days wiping noses and folding little hands in prayer and singing over uh, their child as they change diapers, that God will make his majesty known in all the earth through that little one in your arms. And when the opposition gathers together in rebellion and vengeance and to steal God's glory, God says, let the children sing. Let them praise It's a truth the great Karl Barth understood, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. And though though evangelicals will disagree with some of what he taught, we we would not disagree that he was unbelievably brilliant. His 13-volume, Church Dogmatics, is one of the longest systematic theologies ever written. A man who was expelled from Germany during the Nazi reign, led the Christian opposition to Hitler from Switzerland, where he taught at the University of Basel. Well his one visit to America was in 1960 and he was at a panel discussion at the University of Chicago in their great gothic cathedral there and it came to the point after his lecture there was a question and answer session and one student rose and said quote Professor Bart could you summarize your entire life's work in a few words and everybody was stunned Like, what an audacious statement. Just a word or two describe everything you've given yourself to. And so the audience was silent. From what I understand, you could have heard a pin drop. But the great uh, professor didn't even pause. He says, yes. Yes, I can. In the words of a song my mother taught me when I was a child, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You see, God reveals his majesty And God shuts the mouths of his mighty foes with all their deceptions, not through the powerful and the wise, but through the chubby lips of a toddler who sings God's praise. Isn't that amazing? You think God has enemies? Big deal. Right? I mean, who cares? He's God. He's the self-existent one. He's Yahweh. Right? He's not losing any sleep over his enemies. He's not up there pacing heaven thinking, what should I do? He could just smash them. He could just will them into non-existence. But he doesn't. He doesn't simply snuff them out. He uses, rather, to defeat them an army of weak and unwise children. In other words, God reveals his majesty through weakness. God will triumph over the strength of his opponents through human weakness. He always does this. He'll work through the rejected woman. He'll work through tax collectors and fishermen, not the scholars and the priests of the day. He always seems to choose the second son and shepherd boys and even little old Israel. Why would he choose Israel of all the nations? Well, he tells us in Deuteronomy 7. He says, I chose you because you were the weakest, most insignificant nation I could find. I mean, I looked all over the world. I'm trying to find the, 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 the least strong, the least important people anywhere. And I found you, Israel. I chose you because you were slaves. I chose you because you had no power at all, so that I might use you to display my majesty through human weakness, so that you don't get any of the glory. I get it all, and you get the great joy of being part in it. And he continues to do that even to this day as we see that His majesty is revealed in frail humans who rule the world. Notice as we move on that uh, in verse 3 it should say that God is using the frail to rule the world. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the star, which you have set in place... And so he's considering the heavens, right? He's already said that in verse 2. Uh, you set your glory above the heavens. And, and now he returns to that idea. And uh, you wonder that this, maybe the seeds of this psalm were planted in David's heart when he was a shepherd boy. And he would lie out in the fields at night, gazing upon the vast expanse above him, the heavens. But of course, he doesn't say the heavens, does he? He says, When I look at your heavens, your heavens. These heavens speak to him of the greatness of God. They, they speak to him of the majesty in which God has made. They, are, they belong to you, O God. None of them exist on their own. They're all the work of Yahweh, our king. In, in fact, why we're, why we're thinking about babies, it's almost as if, as, as if the solar system is a, is a mobile you know you, you know, you have those mobiles, you put the baby down in the crib, and, and you got the lion over here, and the, and, the, and the tiger over there, and around and around they go, and the baby just kind of stares up. And maybe one day you say, well, I think I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put the giraffe over here, and then I'll, maybe I'll, I'll move the elephant over to this side. It, it, it's almost as if God is saying, now where should I put Neptune? I think Mars will look good over here. He, he's, they're his heavens. They display your majesty, David says. In fact, I'll never forget the first time I was in the High Sierras on a backpacking trip when I was 14 years old, and I saw for, for the very first time the Milky Way. Now, you may have seen glimpses of the Milky Way, but have you really seen the Milky Way? This, this brilliant white strip across the sky from horizon to horizon. And I, I remember... Um, walking away from the campfire there at about 10,000 feet above the tree line and going out into to an alpine meadow and, and staring up in the sky. And I, I, I remember, like I was yesterday, thinking, as a, as a non-believer, or at least an agnostic, there must be a God. As I, I just surveyed what he had made, I remember thinking, whoever this God is, he must be incredible. The heavens were speaking to me of the glory of God. Just a minute or so later, my father joined me, who was on this backpacking trip. And out there in the darkness of the meadow, I, I remember it, as I said, like it was yesterday. I remember saying, Dad, look at it. Just look at it. There has to be a God. Now, my father didn't believe in an incredible God. He would, have, he would have agreed with those at Harvard. My dad, a rocket scientist, a brilliant mind, had led him away from his childlike faith which he once had. And here I was with this little bud of faith, right? God working in my, in my heart, this little ember of belief in God. And, and God. and my dad could have snuffed it out like that. All he had to do was begin to speak with his great education and intellect and defeat any type of belief that this 14-year-old boy had. And yet he said nothing. I believe it is that God was protecting me. I think God shut his mouth on purpose so that God could begin to do good work in me. And yet it was only a few years later that I heard the gospel and received it. And just a few years after that, so did my father. When I look at your heavens, David said, the work of your fingers, the moon and the star which you have set in place. Of course, it's not just the heavens that point to us the glory of God, isn't it? It's it's everything that God has made. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God has made them all. Don't you see his majesty in music? Can't you see it in a wedding or a or a Thanksgiving meal? Or or children opening their presents on Christmas morning or a quiet evening with your love outside? It was the great G. Campbell Morgan, when he was a boy, encountered a man who uh, had become a new believer through the ministry of his father. And and the the boy, uh, Morgan, met this man out in their family garden. And the man was holding something very small within his hands. And so this little boy walked up to the man and said, Mr., what are you looking at? The man opened his hands, and down fell an amber leaf, turned brilliant in autumn. As he answered this little boy, I'm looking at the glory of God. Do you see it? It's everywhere. Not everybody does, of course. Contrast that with Charles Darwin, a former seminarian who abandoned God, who originally, as a young man, intended to serve the Lord all of his life, pursued a theological education until he abandoned God and went his path. His biography will tell us that he lost this taste of life. He tells us that music no longer moved uh, Darwin. That Darwin who uh, as a younger man had an incredible love for poetry lost all his love for it, considered art to be a waste of time. You see, without God, life lost its flavor. He lived out his days without wonder and without awe. Sometimes people say to be a Christian, oh, that must be so boring. Isn't it the opposite? We see majesty everywhere, glory everywhere. He gave us eyes to see him, lips that we might tell. How great is God Almighty, who has made all things well. In particular, David looks to the stars as we see. And of course, David doesn't know a fraction of what we have discovered today, that our galaxy, the Milky Way, that ribbon across the sky, is made up of 400 billion stars, about 100,000 light years across like a giant pinwheel just turning. And of course, our galaxy of 400 billion stars is just one of 170 billion galaxies, each with billions of stars. Right? If the Milky Way was the size of North America, our solar system would be the size of a coffee cup, and the Earth would just be a speck floating within it. And God made it all. He, knew it. he made it, in fact, David tells us, with his fingers. Of course, God doesn't have fingers, right? So what does he mean, right? It's just a poetic way of saying it wasn't even hard for him. He didn't even have to throw his back into it. He just spoke and it came into existence. And so therefore, it is no surprise at all that David, as he surveys the skies, he, he asks in verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? the Son of Man, that you care for in Him. You see, from the heights of heaven, David comes crashing down to earth and wonders, why would you even care for us in light of how great and mighty you are? We are nothing in comparison to what you have made. We are nothing in comparison to who you are. In light of our frailty, why would you even give us a passing thought? You think, is he being morbid? I don't think so. I think we're actually designed to feel small. It's actually good for us. This is why we go to places like the Grand Canyon. You ever been to the Grand Canyon? You go there and sit on the, the rim of this giant chasm in the earth, and do you think, man, I am something special? You don't go to the Grand Canyon to make yourself big. You go there purposely to make yourself feel small in light of something so much larger than you. I think God has designed us to, to find great joy in recognizing who, where we are in comparison to him. We even write songs about it. Who made the mountains? Who made the trees? Who made the rivers flow to the seas? And who sends the rain when the earth is dry? Somebody bigger than you and I. Who made the flowers to bloom in the spring? Who made the songs for the robins to sing? And who hung the moon in the starry sky? Somebody bigger than you and I. Or to use the language of Isaiah, compared to God, we are just dust on the scale The distance between us and God is unbelievably large. We are specks on a rock revolving around one of the billions of stars in but one of billions of galaxies. And so he says, what are we? Of course, he answers his own question, doesn't he? Thankfully. What are you? The answer is recorded in verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. So where do you look for for significance? Where do you look for for your identity? Do you look up or do you look down? Because the world says we we need to look down. The world says you look to the beast of this earth, for we are, if the, the world was writing this psalm, if Harvard University was writing this psalm, they would say, what is man? We are a little higher than the beast's. That's what Darwin said, man has become the most dominant animal ever to appear on the face of the earth, he said. And as we do, as we're told all we are are simply advanced beasts, we should not be surprised when we begin to act like it. But what if instead looking down, we follow the psalmist's advice, who seems to have much more sense to me, and he looks up. He says, we're not a little higher than the beast, we're just a little lower than the heavenly beings. That we find our identity in the heavens. In fact, he goes on and says, does he not, there in verse 5, that we have been crowned with glory and honor. And since glory and honor belong to God, many see this as a reference to him describing in a beautiful poetic way that we have been made in God's image, that, it, it, that, that we have honor and we have glory because we are like God who has honor and glory. You have heard it said, perhaps, that humans are mirrors and not light bulbs. That is, we don't generate our own light. That, that, that we don't look within to find the brilliant, our brilliance. That Rather, instead, we, we look outward to find something beautiful and that we are able to reflect it. And therefore, if you pursue your own glory, you'll never find it. Jesus said, he who seeks his own uh, self will lose it. He'll lose it. We'll never find honor by looking in. But instead, if we look up to the Lord, if we find delight in, in reflecting what he is like, if we find our joy in being his image bearer, we'll begin to reveal his majesty will make his name majestic in all the earth. In fact, it's because of this that God is mindful of you. He says, what is man? But that's not the, the whole question. What is man? That you are mindful of me. In other words, you are mindful of me. You do think of me. I don't know if you ever feel forgotten by God. And in, in all this running around and everything that's going on, you wonder, does God even think of me? Does God even mindful of me? the psalmist says, yes, he does. He is. I love the story that Alistair Begg likes to tell of a friend moving into a, a new home and carrying a uh, book by book uh, uh, of his library up three flights of stairs into his new library. And, and anyone who delights in their library understands how much work it is to actually move it. And, and, and three flights up uh, to boot. And so this man was carrying and load after load and his young boy was there. And as he said, Daddy, can I help And so he gave him a few magazines to carry up the flights of stairs. And and then on he went, up and down, up and down. And eventually he hears his boy crying, finding him on the stairs, not with magazines, but with one of these biblical encyclopedias, right, that are tough for me to carry. And there's this little boy who can't manage it. And, and, and he, he's there uh, upset that he's not able to, to, to help out his daddy. And, of course, daddy's very stressful, as moving tends to be, and is somewhat exhausted already. And his initial thought when he comes upon this, his child, is that, you foolish little boy, you're not helping me at all. I just wish you would, would, would go away. You're just getting in my way. I have a task to do. Right? I don't know if you ever think thoughts like that. But for this man, as soon as that thought occurred in his own heart, another followed immediately. How is it that God thinks of me? How is it that God cares for me? In fact, he is mindful of me. And so he said, therefore I got down to where he was and picked up my boy and picked up his burden and carried them both to their destination. Isn't that what God does for us? Does he not stoop down to our level and pick us up and pick up our burden? And carry us safely to our end. He's mindful of you. He's crowned you. He's filled you with glory and honor as you reflect him. And one of the ways he does this is by giving us the great honor to rule creation in a way that reflects God's care for it. For this is to what the psalmist uh, turns to in verse 6. He says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You see, we've been given a job to do, according to the psalmist. We are to be stewards of this earth which he has made. The question, I think, comes up, well, why would God have us rule the world? Why doesn't God just rule it? He would do a far better job, wouldn't he? Why does he put us in the position? He doesn't need us. He can just simply rule it from heaven. Well, I think the answer is, once again, God chooses to reveal his majesty through human weakness. As babies defeat his enemies, frail humanity goes on to rule the world, rule what God has made in a way that reflects him. And, 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 though compared to the rest of creation, we're, we're, we're tiny We're insignificant, and yet we're the ones who are told we get to rule it, and we therefore receive the joy in caring for this amazing world, and God gets the glory of accomplishing his purpose through the weakness of people like you and I. He's given us dominion over the work of his hands. He has put, according to the psalmist, all things under our feet. But that that raises a question, doesn't it? Put all things under our feet. Do all things feel like they are under your feet? Do you feel like we are ruling this creation in such a way that all the world is in subjection to us? I don't know about you, but I'm getting tired of of my my brothers and sisters getting cancer. Anybody else? I'm a little tired of dementia as well. A little tired of depression that seems to be striking left and right. Our world seems to be ravaged by disease disaster, there's epidemic hum- hunger, environmental exploitation. You want to see a world that doesn't look in subjection, go with me next time to Ghana, and I will take you to the slums when children are picking through trash to find something to eat. Go, go on one of our three planned trips to Guatemala next year, and you will see a world that does not seem to be in subjection to us. The world is full of disaster and, and, and disease. The world is full of evil. The Bible calls it a fallen world, or a crop world, and it doesn't really feel, does it, like everything is under our feet. And why we're at it, it does seem to me that God's enemies still are yapping. They're still spreading their lies. God still has his foes. So wh- wh- when does the army of babies come out to defeat them? Right? And you, you might read this psalm and say, well, this is all beautiful, isn't it? But David, aren't you being a little naive? Aren't you being a little too simplistic here? What are you talking about? Or maybe we might ask, when are you talking about? I would suggest to you that this psalmist is those fulfilled in aspects by us, it's actually prophetic and points to one. One man in particular. One son of man found in the New Testament. So why don't you, if we have a moment, don't we, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. There's a beautiful passage here in Hebrews 2 that quotes Psalm 8. And if you're finding your way to Hebrews 2, which I encourage you to do so, you'll go by Matthew 21. You might want to put a finger there because we'll turn there in a moment. Hebrews 2 and Matthew 21 And if you want to study this further, there's one other passage in the New Testament that quotes Psalm 8, and that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think verse 27. And so those would be the three places in which we uh, see this psalm applied, and it's all applied to one person in particular. Look what he says in Hebrews 2 and verse 6, is it? Hebrews 2 and verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, he says. Which I think is amusing because he can't can't remember where it's been testified, right? You ever say that? Well, the Bible says somewhere, right? Well, the Bible's actually doing that. So here he is. I know it says it somewhere, um, and and of course he goes on to quote it perfectly, doesn't it? That that's where the parallel stops because he says goes on and says, "What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor." putting everything in subjection under his feet. So he's, we know this, right? This is Psalm 8. It's just quoting Psalm 8. And then he applies Psalm 8, as we read on verse verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. The question is, who, who is he referring to? Who is the him? Is that, is that all of us? Is that all humanity? Who, Whose control? His control. Who is he referring to? Well, if you know the context here, he's not referring to all of us in general, but he's referring to Jesus Christ in particular, as you'll see very clearly in verse 9. But finish verse 8 before we get there. He says, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. So everything has been subject to him, but it doesn't really seem like it, he says. It doesn't really kind of flesh it out. Things look like out of control, even though everything has been subject, subjected to him. Well, verse 9 tells us, as I've said, who it is we're referring to, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now there is just a, a, a plethora of truth in this passage that would take us quite a bit of time to, to unfold. But you see what the, Psalm, the, the writer of Hebrews says. That Jesus is the one who has been made a little lower than the heavenly beings. He is the son of man to which the psalmist re, uh, refers to. He is the secret to human nature. And he has claimed subjection over all this world How? With this great display of power? No, but by human weakness, for we're told that this has been made his as he tastes death for everyone. He he, he displays the glory of God through the suffering of his death, that through human weakness, once again, God is most, his glory is most clearly revealed uh, throughout this world, namely through Christ. And one day when creation is fully renewed, uh, we then, uh, as we are united to Christ in faith, will actually rule as we should because the Son of of God became man. He is the representative man. And that that, that all that he has done uh, will be credited to us. And all he will be able to do, we will be able to participate in as we rule the world through him when he recreates it, if we have been united to him in faith. And I, I wish I had another week to work on this sermon, because I think there is so much truth here that, that Christ is the one who ultimately reveals the majesty of God through weakness, through as he exercised his dominion. Well, you might say, well, why, why is it, what is it that qualifies him to be our representative? Why does he get, get to be the head, this, this man named Jesus? Well, I think the answer here is in Matthew 21, and here we'll end our time in God's word. If you want to find your way to Matthew 21, this is perhaps more appropriately an Easter text and not a Christmas text, but it is glorious nevertheless, is uh, Matthew 21 occurs on Palm Sunday as Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he does so to the shouts of praise. And you remember, uh, after everybody praises him, he goes right up to the temple, and there are the money changers and the, uh, those who are stealing from the pilgrims, and he clears out the temple. Right, He sends everybody away, th- tipping over tables with a whip in his hand, and then once everybody's cleared... Well, they begin to bring the blind and the lame to Jesus to be healed. Look what it says in verse 14 of Matthew 21. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And so he's healing the blind. But there happen to be children around, and the children are not blind. They actually see what Jesus is doing. And they heard his parents shout when he came into Jerusalem. And so now what do they do, these children? They take up the chant there in verse 15, shouting what? Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna simply means save us. Son of David is a reference to the long awaited Messiah. And so they look to Jesus, this man Jesus, and say, Messiah, save us. Okay, but they're not alone, You know who else is there in the temple? The enemies of God. You see that very clearly in verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and when they saw, if you will, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. They're furious. They they, they were beside themselves. And unable to endure their anger any longer... They rebuked Jesus in verse 16. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Right. In other words, they they ask him, they're calling you the Messiah. They're asking you for salvation. Why don't you stop them? Don't you hear what they're saying? Answer, verse 16, Jesus said to them, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> you hear what they're saying? Yeah, I do. And I approve. I delight in them. And they're not blaspheming. And they're not foolish. You're foolish. For they understand who I am. And then he says what? Have you never read? In other words, you priests and scribes, you ought to study your Bible a little bit more. And he goes on to quote what? Psalm 8, this time, verse 2. Out of the mouth of infants... And nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And you know what? Once he quotes that, you know what happens? The result of the prophecy. The enemies are silenced. The argument is over. It does not carry on and on like many of their arguments do. No, their mouths are shut. The day belongs to the toddlers. Right? The children win. And God's enemies, at least for the moment, are stilled through the praise of these little ones. But what's far more stunning is that when Jesus, what what Jesus is claiming when he applies this psalm to himself, he says, out of the mouths, what did he say? Out of the mouths of infants and babes, you have prepared praise. Now, in the psalm, who are they praising? They're praising Yahweh, our Adonai, O Lord our Lord. But in the temple, who are they praising? They're praising Jesus. And so this is this a head-shaking claim, a jaw-dropping statement that Jesus, in quoting Psalm 8 and verse 2, saying, Yahweh is being praised by these children when they praise me because I am none other than Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I am. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus is not just the perfect man Hebrews 2, but God himself, Matthew 21. And both truths are brought together in Psalm 8. And he uses not the wise and the powerful to declare this, but the weakness of children who announce his majesty. Because the majesty of God is revealed through human weakness. Which, of course, as we've already uh, uh, hinted at uh, Points us to the greatest display of the majesty of God, that God Himself will become a baby. Is that power or weakness? In a manger, no less. No place to be born. And instead of taking power, He would lose power and continue to lose power all the way to the cross. And we look at a crucified Savior and it looks to the world weak. It looks frail. It looks like defeat. And it is, my brothers and sisters, the greatest display of the majesty of God. And it ought to be declared to all the earth that our God is majestic through the crucified Messiah whom we worship. Because his majesty of God is displayed as he chooses through the weakness of humanity. You say, how do we respond, therefore? Oh, respond like the children did on this great day. Perhaps you in your heart even now would cry out what they cried out some 2,000 years ago. Hosanna to the Son of David. Messiah Jesus, save me. Save me. Have you made that cry? Have you cried out to Him? How do we start our service? In, In Romans 10 verse 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you not cry to him now, believing that he died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin and rose three days later to pave a path through death for you? And if you have, perhaps you would join the children, not just in their faith, but in their praise. Maybe even join the psalmist. And in your heart today and every day going forward, you might live a life declaring, O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Our Father, we believe that you are majestic. And it's everywhere. But your majesty is not simply revealed in great and awesome displays of power. But your majesty is revealed even in us. As we live the lives you've called us to live through the strength of our Lord Jesus. Let us this Christmas season, this Advent, even as we begin this morning, will you please give us eyes to see the majesty of God in a baby born in Bethlehem and in a Messiah dying upon the cross as his enemies surround and mock. Let us see it in an empty tomb. Let us see it in salvation that he offers to all who don't climb up to heaven by their own strength, but rather those who admit they are weak and frail and needy and bow their knee to King Jesus. For there is no greater display of your majesty than when a sinner admits as much and lays their life before their risen king. Do so even now, we pray in Christ's name, amen.